Good morning. Go ahead and grab a seat. So good to see you guys this morning. Thank you for uh, bundling up a little bit this morning. I know for us Floridians, this is um, the mark of the end times when it's chilly like this. But glad to have you here uh, this morning. Go ahead and turn over to Jonah chapter one. Uh, That is where we will be this morning. And over the course of the next four weeks, uh, we will work through uh, this little Old Testament book uh, about a prophet by the name of Jonah and unpack what God did through his life. Um, and, and really a, a lot happens. And I want, I want to start off my time this morning just by unpacking for you guys a, a couple of the, the themes or big ideas that we will see uh, in this book uh, as we study it over the next couple of weeks. And I, and I, I want to start with this one. Uh, first and foremost, uh, this story actually happened. And I think it's, it's important that whenever we are unpacking or, or, or looking at Scripture uh, to make sure we differentiate between uh, things that we might say are uh, stories of imagery or things that might have happened versus is this a historical narrative of something that actually occurred. Uh, if you study ancient history at all, what you'll, what you'll notice is that Nineveh was a, a city in modern-day Iraq on the eastern bank of the Tigris River. It would actually be across from modern-day Mosul, which is a very large city in Iraq. And so uh, Nineveh is mentioned multiple times throughout Scripture. And, and typically when you see Nineveh mentioned in Scripture, what you'll notice is that Nineveh and Israel did not get along very well. That, that frequently Nineveh and Israel were at, were at odds with one another. And so we know that Nineveh actually existed. It was a city where you could actually see if they did archaeological digs where you would be able to dig up where that city was. And, and Jesus confirms the reality of this story being his, an, an actual historical narrative uh, in Matthew chapter 12. And we'll look at that later. But Jesus references the story of Jonah as something that actually physically happened to uh, to Jonah and in, in Israel's um arc of history. And so the second thing I want you guys to notice, and this is something we'll see throughout this book as we study it, is the redemptive arc inside the book of Jonah. Uh, What we'll see is this juxtaposition between the pride and disobedience of man in relation to God's word to them, but then we'll also see God faithfully pursuing and saving his own despite their rebellion. And this is a theme that we see throughout all of Scripture, but it is uh, prevalent, especially inside such a small book in the Old Testament. The third thing we're going to see throughout this study is we're going to see God's character on display time and time and time again. We're going to see God's sovereignty in both the words that he speaks and his commands, but also his ordering of events throughout this narrative. We're going to see his mercy both to Jonah, we're going to see it to the sailors, and we're going to see it to the Ninevites. And then we're also going to see his holiness. We're going to see a glimpse into God's standard, his perfection, and his beauty. And I think I want to share this quote with you from uh, Paul Mackerel, who's, who wrote a, a really great uh, summary of the, the book of Jonah that I was studying in preparation for uh, our, our time in this study. And I think he kind of, he sums up just how we tend to think about Jonah and maybe how we should maybe have a, a correction in our approach to the book. He says this, 
When we think Jonah, we think whale. Or should we? Actually, we should not. The whale or the great fish merely appears among the supporting cast along with the worm which appears later in the account. Instead, this book is about the character of God. It shows us something of his burning holiness, something of his powerful and detailed ordering of events, and something of his tender mercy. And so my goal for us over the course of the next four weeks, starting this morning, is is just a few things. One, as we study this book together, that we would see God and his character and his holiness more clearly. We would see how he is at work saving rebellious religious people like Jonah, but also saving rebellious, irreligious people like the sailor and the Ninevites. And so will you take a moment just to bow in prayer with me and as we ask God to meet us as we study his word together over the next several weeks. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. God, thank you for preserving your word for us. That thousands of years later, we would still know stories of what you did to reveal yourself to your people. Father, will you meet us here this morning as we hear from your word? And will it lead us to know you better, to love you more, to obey you more, to trust you more? Father, we love you, and I ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Jonah chapter 1, uh, kind of the, the first thing we're going to see, I'm going to break it down kind of in paragraphs, but each paragraph is going to kind of um, show us something and reveal something to us. And so let's read these just these first three verses here in Jonah chapter 1. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. For their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare, went down into it to go with them to Tarshish and away from the presence of the Lord. And so I want to start off by just pointing out, notice how this entire book begins, right? He says, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah. He start, he's, we start off reading this account seeing this. God spoke to Jonah. The God of the universe met Jonah, spoke to him, and gave him very specific directions on what he was to be doing, how his life was to be ordered, and how he was supposed to be living at least the next season of his life. And I think this points out an an important kind of thing that we need to notice is that we need revelation from God. Amen? That, That when God speaks to us, he reveals to us both who we are and who we are in relation to him as the creator. 
one of the things I frequently um, remind people about is as I went through this spiritual journey that I was on in college, my, my freshman and sophomore years, and I studied multiple world religions, one of the things I found so compelling about the God of the Bible and the God of Christianity is that the Bible answers the question of why in the world are we here and why in the world is are things just so messed up around us? Why, why is life so chaotic? Why am I unable to even follow the standards that I set for myself, much less the ones that are written in this book? And there are truths inside of Scripture that I find to be really, really uncomfortable. That, I, that, that when I read them, I'm like, I don't really like that. But when I look over the landscape of the world around us, I say, well, it matches up with what God says in his word. And so what we see for Jonah is that God speaks to him directly. And for us, right, some you know, four to 5,000 years later, depending on when you time this out, it might have been, be about 3,000 years. But what we see is that God is still revealing himself to us. He's still speaking to us today, but he's doing it primarily through the word of God, the Bible, the Holy Scriptures. This is why, and we tell you guys this regularly if you've spent any regular amount of time with us here at Aletheia Church, that one of our values is the Bible. Because we have such a high confidence in this book and how God reveals himself through the various authors over various periods of time to let us know who we are. That God's word brings clarity to our lives. It anchors us in the truth of our identity and tells us the way in which we should pattern our lives. It explains to us why sin is so destructive. And it also explains to us that we were created by a God who is merciful, who is long-suffering, and who is just and gracious towards us. And so as we go to God's word and as it tells us what we are designed to do, we see this for Jonah, right? God's word comes to him. And he tells Jonah, go to Nineveh because their evil has come up before me. Now, Nineveh during this time period was actually a great city. It was a, it was a, a city of war. Um, they... they they had a powerful army. They were constantly going out to battle against people. And Nineveh also worshiped a demon god. And I think frequently, at least I remember growing up reading this story, and there were kind of two ways that the story of Jonah was presented to us. And I always love uh, especially children's Bibles, because this is one of the stories that frequently gets put into children's Bibles. You know, the two most famous stories for kids are uh, the story of the flood, right, where God literally kills everyone, except for Noah's family. He's like, hi, kids. Let's learn about how God eliminated the human race. So we read that story, and then we often read this one, and, and this story was always used as a scare tactic for us to get, if you disobey God, you will be eaten by a whale. One, I assure you of this, the punishment awaiting sinners is far worse than being eaten by a whale. But two, that's not what we see in this story. And Jonah gets a bad rap in this story because, there, because people are like, well, God clearly spoke to him, right? If God spoke to me the way that he speaks to Jonah, I would just listen all the time. As Jonah was a prophet of God. And yet when God's word comes to him, he disobeys. 
uh, th- think about it from this perspective, right? What God is asking Jonah to do would be the equivalent of you having a vision today and God speaking to you and saying, yeah, I want you to go to North Korea and plant a church in Pyongyang. You're likely to be killed. I'm not even sure how you're going to get into the country, but this is what I want you to do. Would you listen? Because I think we frequently read this story and we fail to realize how much we have in common with Jonah. That what God is asking of Jonah is a nearly impossible task, not to mention the the prevailing themes of not liking Gentiles and, and overt racism that Jonah might have been dealing with. And so Jonah, right, does what I think I might possibly do in this situation when asked by God to do something that seems impossible. He runs. Now, guys, Jonah is a prophet. He understands that there's nowhere you can go to run from the presence of God. We're going to see that later on as he describes to the sailors why everything that is going on in this account is actually happening. He fully understands that he can't really escape the presence of God, but his his thought process is, I'm going to get as far away from Nineveh as I possibly can, and maybe, just maybe, God will select someone else to do this impossible task. Maybe, just maybe, this will be passed off from me. He says to God, as he goes to Joppa to sail off, God, I know I'm your prophet, I know you've spoken to me, but you can only have partial access to my life. I'm, I'm going to compartmentalize following you to when it is convenient and safe and easy for me. And then the other times, I'm going to do what I want to do. And this is the first moment that we begin to see this theme that I was talking about earlier that, that, that is prevalent throughout all of Scripture, but the pride and disobedience of mankind towards God and His Word. And this is a theme that we see from the very beginning of Scripture, right? If you go back to Genesis chapter 3, you see Adam and Eve were given one command and they choose to disobey it, right? Cain and Abel are told to bring sacrifices to God and to worship him, which leads to the murder of one of the brothers. If you study the history of Israel, right, God leads the nation of Israel out of slavery into Egypt. And once they're out of Egypt and they're waiting to enter the promised land, God gives these directions to Moses and basically says, hey, if you follow these directions, if you obey God's word, it will go well with you. You will be blessed. You'll be a great nation. You'll enjoy life. And consistently throughout the Old Testament, as we read the story of Israel, we see rejection and disobedience of God's word, and yet you see God faithfully forgiving, showing grace, and restoring Israel time and time and time again. One of the things that was kind of eye-opening to me as a relatively new believer when I was in college is I always had this view that the God of the Old Testament was so much more vengeful and so, so much more filled with wrath as opposed to Jesus and what we see out of God in the New Testament. And what I came to find is, no, God is consistent all throughout Scripture. His wrath is just no longer poured out on man once we get to the New Testament, but it's poured out on his son. 
but God's hatred of sin and God's desire to see us follow him and live abundantly within his word is littered throughout scripture. And the story we see consistently throughout scripture is that man chooses disobedience over the clear commands of God. And yet God still chooses to love his own and pursue them and call them back to him. And he will do the same with Jonah, as we'll see throughout this study. And so as we continue forward, I want you to think, think about this. As we continue to read this story this morning, I want to pose this question to you. Do you know that God has called all of us to him? That by your very existence, God has called you to know him and to follow him. And in that, if you're a follower of Jesus here this morning, right, answer this question. Do you believe that God has the right to speak into any area of your life? Not just with how you spend your Sunday mornings or how you spend some of your time, but does God have sovereign authority over every area of your life? How you might raise your children one day, how you might use your finances, how you might live and work to the glory of God. Because God speaks to all these things, and when God speaks, we're given two choices, to obey and trust or run and disobey as Jonah does. And as we see throughout this story, it does not go well for Jonah, at least in the beginning. Look at verse 4 through 10 with me. But the Lord, the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. And then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. And so what we see here, right, throughout these verses Right? It says, but the Lord, the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. Right? We, we see again this consistent theme, God is sovereign. Right? He's spoken to Jonah and told him how to operate. Jonah runs and flees his presence. He's out on the sea. God sovereignly uh, decrees that a storm will occur. Right? And the sailors who are full-time mariners, right, as it says here, right, are scared to the point where they begin unloading cargo. So if you're unsure of how bad this storm is, right, Cargo weighs down the ship, and the, and the heavier the ship is, the more likely it is to capsize, and they all die. And so they've decided, hey, it's our livelihood and money or our very lives. And so they're dumping this cargo off the ship, hoping that 
enough weight will be uh, thrown off the ship that maybe the, the ship can bounce up and survive the storm. Jonah, meanwhile, I love this, he's asleep in the hull of the ship. So this storm is so bad that they're hurling cargo off the ship and Jonah is asleep. Now, I have no idea why he's asleep. I've thought through it. Um, it, It's crazy. I think what's kind of cool about it is it's one of the first foreshadows we see in this story to Jesus. As later on, if you read in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, Jesus and the disciples are out on uh, the sea and a storm uh, begins to, to form and throw the ship like crazy. And the disciples are fearful for their very lives and they go and wake up Jesus because Jesus is asleep during the storm. And so I've read a a lot of commentaries this past week that spoke to various reasons as to why Jonah may have been asleep. Pastor Daniel called me on Friday morning and and gave me this and I want to share it with you. He says, you know, in a lot of ways, Kevin, Jonah is an image of how sin operates in our lives. The sailors are desperately trying to figure out what is wrong or what is going on the same way that our consciences may be trying to figure out why our life is so chaotic around us. And yet we, like Jonah, hide in our sin, unaware at the time the full weight of the problems that our sin is creating. I was like, that's cool. I thought he might have just been seasick. Anybody ever been like deep sea fishing, by the way? Yeah. Anyone get sick while being out deep sea fishing? Yeah. Like I went out with, when I was in high school, I went out with my uncle and my dad had like kind of warned me. He's like, dude, you're not, you're not equipped for this. Like you're not, you're not going to make it. And of course, you know, I was 16. I'm like, dad, you're weak. I'm fine. You know, I'm going to be fine. So we get out there and there's a small craft advisory that day. So, you know, even more of a hint, like Kevin, you're not going to make it. And we get out and I'm fine. And, and we're going out there and I cast my line into the water and like five minutes in, I'm like, my only survival tactic was to lay down on a hard bench and fall asleep so that I would stop throwing up. So that may have been what Jonah was, was, was doing here. I, I don't know. But I can assure you of this, the chaos that is going on around him causes the sailors to wake him up and say, hey, look, call out to your God, we're all going to die. And we'll talk about that a little bit more here in just a second. But then they cast lots to figure out why this is happening. And the lot, of course, falls on Jonah. And Jonah then confesses, yeah, it's all my fault. I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and dry land. And so here's what I want us to pause and think about here for a second, right? God has called Jonah to do something. Jonah has disobeyed and God is so intentional about making sure Nineveh is reached with his word that he will cause a storm and natural disaster to occur to redirect Jonah back to Nineveh. This should be an indication to us when I asked that question earlier, is there any area of your life that God is not sovereign over The answer is no. God is sovereign over all things, including global pandemics. And he will use them to redirect his people. And God uses this storm in two ways, right? He uses it to rebuke, correct, and redirect Jonah, but he also uses it to reveal himself to the unreligious pagan sailors on this boat. Think about it, think about it this way. Think about the sailors in this story because they kind of have a, a supporting role in what we see going on here. 
and, and we tend to not think about them a whole lot, but they actually remind me a lot of what we see just in, in culture and in life around us. These sailors come from various religious and cultural backgrounds, and so they're all crying out to various gods to help them once this storm kicks up. Like, will one of these gods please step up to the table and save us from what is going on here? And I think as we, as we look out across the cultural landscape of, of what we live in, right, we see what appears to be, anyway, a world that's becoming less and less religious, and so it's easy to think that something like this isn't, isn't actually happening, but I actually think that people in our neighborhoods, in our classrooms, in our workplaces are just as religious as they were when I was a kid, if not more so. It just, it lies dormant and it looks different. But when suffering and tragedy strike, like this storm strikes Jonah and the sailors, the religion starts bubbling out no matter what the background is. They may not be super committed to their faith, but the moment their life is on the line, they're crying out to someone, right? The number of times I've seen people that I went to high school with or that I went to college with that do not know God, do not walk with God, don't want to have anything to do with God, the moment that they get some bad medical news or something difficult and their life hits, I'm getting texts or messages, hey, pastor, will you pray for me? Pastor, I'm praying, will you, will you have someone praying for me? Will you add us to the prayer list at your church? Or my personal favorite, will you send me some good vibes as if I'm telepathic? And then when the crisis passes, the religious zeal ends and they go back to normal. Christian Smith, a sociologist, wrote a book in 2005 when I was in co college that, that was really, really good. And he presented this idea of, he, he, he interviewed American teenagers and asked them about their religious beliefs. And the name of the book was called Soul Searching, The Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers. And here's what his research found, that American teenagers were just as religious as any other generation before them. Because all the statistics at the time were saying that, that, that God was dying and the idea and the concept of God was dead in America. And here's what he found that somewhere between 80 and 95% of American teenagers believe the following things. A God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. That this God wants people to be good. He wants them to be nice. He wants them to be fair to each other. As taught in the Bible or other world religions, pick which one you want, but just have a standard. That the central goal of life is to be happy and feel good about oneself that this God does not need to be involved in your life except when he's needed to resolve a problem and that good people go to heaven when they die. That this was a common belief over, in over 85% of the people that he had surveyed, even if they had no religious background or didn't hold to a particular tenet of religious belief. And the idea was kind of God is there for us when we need him. But otherwise, he's not interested in what's going on in our lives and that he has standards that I can pick and choose from. One, this is not the God of the Bible. Two, the God of the Bible is better than that God. Far, far better than that God. 
Guys, this storm that Jonah is going through here and that the sailors are walking through here in Jonah chapter one is relatable to so much of human suffering or tough seasons. Think about a difficult time in your life or a difficult season that you know someone has been in. They may even call it a storm of life. Yeah, I went through a storm of life in that particular season. And what we see here in Jonah one is that God can even be the author of those storms. And that while these storms are psychologically difficult and emotionally and physically draining, God uses them and designs them to reveal himself to us, to show us his faithfulness, and to lead us to trust him more. And the reactions in the midst of these storms for most people are the same reactions we see other people on the boat. The sailors, the first reaction is fear. Their next reaction is common sense. They start unloading the cargo. Hey, I can take care of this, right? The difficulty's all around me. We can figure this out. We can get our way through it. And then as they realize, as the storm gets worse and worse and that common sense isn't going to help them, they begin crying out to God in despair or to, to anyone that will listen and help. And some of us, like Jonah, when difficulty strikes, we, we run to selfish withdrawal and hiding. What God shows us in Jonah 1 is that the one thing that is needed to survive and come out on the other side of difficulty and suffering is surrender to him. Look at verses 11 through 16 with me. This is the sailors talking. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, and I love this part, right? It just says it so like nonchalant me. Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed harder to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and they hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. So the sailors have hit this, this breaking point of what to do, and they asked Jonah, okay, you're saying that your God's behind this? You're saying you know why this is going on? Well, what do we do then? Right, you're the one with answers. And Christians, let me just say this. Sometimes people are going to be looking to you for answers in life, especially when they hit difficult times. As I said earlier, right, as a pastor, the number of people that contact me when they hit hard seasons, right, you need to be ready to be able to give some answers how God might guide them in that season. So they say, Jonah, what should we do with you? And he says, pick me up, hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Now the sailors, they don't like that option. Right? And so, so the, they start rowing against God. Anyone ever tried to do this? You know that God's telling you to do something and you just like, I, I can do this. I can get through this even though God has asked me to do something else. Two people. More hands are going up now, right? 
How'd that work out? Right, you're dating someone that you know you shouldn't be dating. You're making financial decisions that you know you shouldn't be making. Right, eventually it gets found out. And as they're rowing against God and against his will for what God is asking them to do, they're like, it's, it's not working. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. And so what do they finally do? The one thing that any of us need to do in relation to God, they surrender. And, and here's something I think is, is really interesting to think through, because I've wrestled with, like, why would Jonah say this? How would Jonah know, like, hey, throw me in the sea, that will fix everything? I've even had some scholars believe that Jonah was so um, against going to Nineveh that suicide seemed like a better option to him, and that's what he was doing here. I'm not, I'm not necessarily convinced by that. Here you have the sailors and Jonah, they, they see death before them, and Jonah knows that he and his sin is the cause of this calamity for himself and the sailors on this boat. And he surrenders to God. He, he, he stands before the Lord and he says, God, have them throw me overboard, but save them. And either I die for my disobedience or you're going to provide a way to save me. And the sailors knowing this is the only way that God will save them, throw Jonah overboard. It says the sea ceases from its raging. And here we have, right, these irreligious, ungodly sailors who worshipped various gods, right, who came from all sorts of cultural and religious backgrounds. What does it say they immediately start doing? They fear the Lord, they worship, and they provide a sacrifice to God. As those sailors were saved in that moment, on the spot, when they saw the power and sovereignty of God put on display in their lives. They went from not knowing who their God and creator was to knowing immediately. And God saves them on the spot. When we are in the midst of a season and suffering, like the storm that Jonah and the sailors are in, Church, let me promise this. It is on the other side and in the midst of that storm where God's grace is shown to be the most powerful. It's easy to think that you're trusting God when things are going well. But when things are out of your control and not going well is when God really shows up and shows off. It's how Paul is able to say in Romans 8.28, and a lot of us have this verse memorized, right? Let me read it to you. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. What if I told you 
that the sailors and Jonah lived out Romans 8.28. Would anybody sign up to be on that boat? Yet that's what we're talking about here. As I rack my brain about like, like, like how can I illustrate this point further, right? I, I thought about dozens and dozens of stories that I saw in people in my, in my time in ministry over the last 15 years, people where I've seen them hit low points and where God's grace was most evident to them. But I think it's, it, it, it's most apt and most appropriate for me to share a story that Jackie and I experienced in our own lives. And some of you guys have heard this story before, but my youngest son, Josiah, he's six years old. He's cute as a button. He's incredibly irritating. And he knows he's cute, which is what makes it 10 times worse. Some of you college girls just don't realize the more attention you give him and the less he, like the less he's going to pay attention to you. The only way to get Josiah's attention is to ignore him. He's like knows how to play the game already. I don't know how. But we brought Josiah home on, on his second day of life and his first night at home, right? We're, we're up at 3 a.m. and we're, we're you know, we're, I'm trying to help Jackie out and change his diaper. And he just, he's acting really bizarre. And newborns act bizarre. Those of you guys that are parents, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Newborns act bizarre. They just do weird things. And I was like, Jackie, like something's off. Like I, I can't really pick up what's going on here, but something's off. I can't, I can't pick up what's happening here. It's like, I think he's having a seizure. And it didn't present like a normal seizure because he's a newborn, right? So it doesn't, doesn't look normal. And, and so she's like, ah, I don't know. And so we, we, you know, we put him back to sleep and you know, he kind of did his thing the next day. And then the next night, same thing happened again. And I was, there's just like alarm bells going off inside my head. Like something is wrong here. You need to do something about it. I can't describe it other than that it was supernatural. But Kevin, something needs to be done. So I was like, we need to go to the hospital. It's like 3 a.m. and my mother-in-law's there. And so she stays with my oldest son. And we go into the hospital and, and they admit us. And, you know, we're crying, emotional messes as the pediatricians uh, admit us into the hospital. And so we're, we're there for like 24 hours and they've got him hooked up to all these uh, machines and they've poked and prodded at, at every part of his little body and they've done a spinal tap on him and the doctor comes in and they're like, yeah, we just, we think you're kind of overreacting. We think he's fine. And my sister and I go downstairs to get breakfast and as we come, come, we're coming back up ready to be released, the nurse runs out to us and says he just had a seizure. They caught it on the EEG. And guys, what transpired? What transpired over the course of the next six months in my life was nothing short of a living hell. As my wife and I spent way more time living in a hospital room than I would ever want anyone to have to deal with. As I wrestled with every insecurity you could possibly imagine as a man, and early on in the process, right, I kind of came to this conclusion. I was like, okay, this just is what it is. Like people, people deal with medical issues. Like this just happens sometimes. Like this, this, is just, this is just part of life, right? But I can do this. I can be a great pastor to this new church that we helped start. And I can still be a great dad to Gideon, even though I need to visit Josiah in the hospital. And I can still be there for my wife and do everything that I need to do. And, and I can still just do all the stuff that I need to do. I can just do it. And so like 30 days pass, pass and I'm like, I'm just plugging along, like rowing against God, just doing what I think I can do. Just, I can, I can do this. 
40 days pass, 50 days pass, and I'm starting to wear I'm starting to wear down at this point. I'm cranky, I'm irritable. I'm like hiding in my room any opportunity I can get. I'm just so frustrated. And I'm, I'm at my office, and at this point, like all I can manage to do emotionally and physically as far as pastor the church is preach a message on Sunday morning. That like was the, what I was capable of doing. Gideon was practically taking care of himself when I was at home. Jackie was practically living at the hospital by herself with our son as he was having multiple epileptic seizures and they were trying to figure out ways to help him. I'm praying. I'm like asking God, is my son even going to walk one day? Like we, we had no idea what was going to happen. Is he going to be able to talk? What, what, what is my life going to look like? And I remember one Thursday afternoon, Josiah had been home for like three or four days at that point, which was like his longest stretch of being at home and not being hospitalized. And we're like three months into his life. And I get a call from Jackie. Your sister's with your brother. I need you to meet me at the hospital. He's had six seizures today. We're going to the hospital. So I'm in a daze and I, I leave my apartment and I, I get in the car and I, I had this office over off of 13th Street. I was sharing an office space with some realtor that was over there. And I, I get to the stop sign and I just put the car and park. I just stopped. And it was in that moment that I resolved, God, I'm done with you. I'm done. I gave up my life. I gave up financial security. I didn't pursue what I went to college to do. I came down here to plant a church so we could reach people. And this is how you repay me. I'm done with you. I'm done being a good dad. And I'm done being a good husband. I'm done with all this. I'm finished with it. Because you're not listening to me anyway. I'm done with this. And I resolved right then and there, I was going to turn off my cell phone and I was going to drive out west and change my identity and become a new person. As if, you know, that was going to be possible, right? But that was, that was the state I was in at that point in time. And as I sat there, by God's grace, traffic was horrific. And I'm sitting there, and guys, God audibly spoke to me and met me at the stop sign near, near 13th, near the Applebee's. So if you ever want to talk to the Lord, there's a good spot. And I heard him say to me, stop trying to fix this and do it on your own. Put the car in drive. Go to the hospital. Be with your wife. I've got this. You don't need to have it all together. Guys, I can't describe what occurred in that moment other than just this supernatural peace came over me. All the guilt all the shame, everything that I've been putting on myself over the course of the last 60 to 90 days, the Lord just took from me. And I surrendered to him. Not for the first time in my life, I'd already surrendered to God. I was a religious person like Jonah at this point in my life. But God in his grace, even in the midst of my obstinance and rebellion towards things that I knew. I knew I could not fix and heal my son. I knew that I was never a perfect pastor. I knew, and Jackie will confirm to you, that I was never a perfect husband. I knew that I wasn't a perfect father, and yet I had all these pictures and visions of what I was supposed to be and do, and it was in that moment of brokenness 
and realizing that I couldn't go a step further and that the chaos that I was experiencing at that point in time was because I had not surrendered, that like Jonah, I said, God, take, take the wheel. I'm yours. And guys, God, God met me. Our church stepped up in ways for us in that season that Jackie and I cannot begin to describe to you guys. We were smaller then and somehow even younger than we are now. Like the average age of you guys here is like 24. It was like 15 then. I don't even know how that was possible. We had people showing up, bringing us meals, staying with my kids. Guys, one of my biggest fears that when we came to plant this church is like we're, we're going to, Jackie and I are just going to give, 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 and, and like we're just going to burn out. And God told us we were wrong. He showed us that we were wrong in that season. And some of you guys who are even here this morning, you stepped up in that season and loved on my wife and I, and you were used by God to show us that in the midst of the storm, when you surrender to God, God comes out on the other side and takes care of you. And that as Romans 8.28 promises that God works all things for the good of those who love him. So here's the question I want to ask you this morning. You may or may not be in a storm right now, but when you are, what is your response going to be? Will you run from it like Jonah? Will you row against it like the sailors? Or will you surrender in the chaos and meet Jesus who is able to calm the storm? Have you surrendered? I want to finish by looking at verse 17. As they throw Jonah overboard, look at what God does. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Says the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And this is the last point I want us to see this morning. And we're going to see this all throughout our time in Jonah. Jesus is the better Jonah. Right? It says the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, not to punish him, but to sovereignly keep him and save him so that he might fulfill what God had called him to do. Jonah had surrendered himself to God, and God saves him. And we'll see more of that in chapter 2. Pastor Theo is going to unpack that for us a little bit next week. But just as God saves Jonah here, and he is the hero, he saves Jonah both from death and raises him to new life to lead the Ninevites to him. And as beautiful as this is, as we'll study over the next three to four weeks, the beautiful foreshadow to what Jesus does for us. Go to Matthew chapter 12 with me. Look at Jesus. Look at what he says starting in verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights 
in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus is the better Jonah. Just as Jonah spends three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, only to be raised to life again and fulfill the will of the Father, Jesus spent three days and three nights in the ground. I want to share this with you. This is how I want us to finish this morning. I'm going to share some ways with you that Jesus is the better Jonah. And if you think any of what I'm about to share with you is my own thought, it's not. I stole it from multiple pastors and multiple scholars. I stole from so many that I couldn't even list them all, but just know it's all stolen. I don't know if that covers me from any copyright rules, but it's all stolen. But Jesus is the better Jonah. As we see in the book of Jonah, the word of God came to him, but Jesus is the word of God as revealed to us in John 1. Jonah ran from the presence of God when God came to him, but Jesus brings God's presence to us. Jonah was a runner from God, but Jesus runs after us. Jonah could not calm the storm, but Jesus did. Jonah was thrown into the sea to satisfy God's wrath, but Jesus was nailed to a cross to fully satisfy the wrath of God. By Jonah's life, some were saved to God, but through Jesus, all who believe are saved to the Father. Jonah spent three days and nights in the belly of a fish, but Jesus spent three days and three nights in a tomb raised to new life. Jonah needed a Savior, and Jesus is Jonah's Savior. And he's ours as well. Here at Aletheia Church, we love Jesus. Unashamedly so. We worship and follow a first century carpenter who also happened to be the son of God and the man who changed the entire course of human history. He's the one who those we read about in the Old Testament longed for his appearing. He's the one who when his appearance came in the New, in the New Testament who loved that they finally got to witness the appearing of God's son and the promised Messiah. And he's the one who has saved us in whom we worship. The church here is my plea to us this morning. That just like Jonah, just like the sailors, just as anyone who's followed God for the last 6,000 plus years of recorded human history, here is my plea to us this morning. Surrender to Jesus. Surrender to him. Just as Jonah did, just as the sailors did, surrender to him. He is faithful, gracious, and merciful. And so 
We're going to enter into a time of response. We do this every Sunday at this church. If I asked you to be one of the people who will pray with others, if you'll go ahead and stand up and move around to the outside. But I'm going to ask you guys to observe a couple things and respond to Jesus by surrendering. Right As the band comes up, right, surrender in worship and in song by worshiping Jesus for what he has done. If you are in the midst of a difficult season or you're here this morning and you've never surrendered your life to Jesus, we're going to have people scattered throughout the outside of where you guys are sitting. They'll be wearing masks. I know it's COVID-19, but if you want somebody to pray with you, they will pray with you this morning to surrender to Jesus. And then we're going to take communion, right? We have the bread and the juice up here, and you can grab one of those cool little packets that are COVID-19 friendly. But we take communion here every Sunday so that we can remember that the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ was poured out for us for the forgiveness of sins. And that one of the things we try to remember here is that when we take communion, communion is an act of surrendering. It's where we are saying before God the Father, I can't save myself, but Jesus rescued me through his flesh and blood. You take communion as an act of worship and surrender to Jesus. And then we're going to celebrate this morning. We have someone getting baptized this morning. And baptism is another way in which we surrender to Jesus. Where we publicly declare by getting in the water that we have died to trying to do it our own way. We have died to Christ and we are raised up out of the water just as Jesus was raised to new life being pulled out of the grave. Forever changed to live for Jesus. If you need to be baptized today, if you are here this morning and you are a follower of Jesus and you've never been baptized and you want to surrender, we will baptize you this morning. The water's warm. It's cold outside, but it's warm in the water, I promise. You can grab me. You can grab one of the people scattered around here. Tell them that you want to get baptized. We will baptize you this morning. And today you can surrender to Jesus. But church, as someone who has walked through multiple storms in their life, and as people who are gathered in this community, as we are a group of men and women who love Jesus, I will tell you this. If you are in the storm, if you are in life and you do not have him, surrender to him. It is the way forward. Do not row. Do not run. Do not dump the cargo. Surrender to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I don't know where everyone is this morning. But I would imagine that some of us here this morning are either in the middle of or just coming out of or just entering into very difficult seasons of life. Holy Spirit, will you give us the strength to surrender to you to trust that you are better. You are better than what the world promises. You are better than our own ability to fix and do things. And will you reveal yourself to us 
the way that you did to those sailors, the way that you did to Jonah, and the way that you did to the Ninevites. And will this lead to a greater worship of you? God, we love you and we ask this all in Jesus' name.